But who do you say I am? That's our theme verse from Mark chapter 8, verse 29 for this week's Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Senior Pastor Perry Duggar continues our series called Encounters with Christ and today's episode, A Challenging Encounter. Here's the spiritual practice this week. On a note card or sticky note, write Jesus' words, not my will, but yours be done. That's from Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Place this where you'll see it often and ask God to give you the desire to follow his plan and not your own. If you want to watch a video of this week's message, listen to worship, or search through the message archives, visit brookwoodchurch.org slash watch or download the Brookwood Church app. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date with the Encounters with Christ series. We pray this message encourages you and your walk with Christ. And now, Perry Duggar. You know, we must remind ourselves the blood of Christ is the depth of the gospel. Sometimes people say, I want something deeper. There's nothing deeper. There's nothing deeper than the blood sacrifice of Christ. It's good to be back. And when I return, I'm reminded what a good people you are, what a great church this is. And I've been taught that personally, particularly this summer, as you have consistently prayed for my family, my grandson, many of you have prepared meals, a number of you have given even generous contributions to my daughter and her husband, and you have sustained us through your prayer. They're at home. He's... They came home in June, and you can see he's a, he's a healthy-looking little boy. He's, he is on dialysis 14 hours a night. He's fed with a gastric tube, but he's a joyful child. And you can see the fire in his eyes, the light in his eyes. Um, we continue to pray for healing. We believe in healing. We haven't seen complete healing yet, but we haven't lost hope. And so we continue to pray and we fast and uh, he's now seven months old. He's a, he's a big boy, but, but thank you for loving him and loving us and um, asking about him. Many of you ask, have asked about him when I, we are in the community. Today, I continue the message series that Josh and JC began, Encounter with Christ, and today's title and my focus is A Challenging Encounter. You know, I think this has been a good series that they pulled together, not me, because we have seen through Jesus many interactions with different people in different circumstances, from different backgrounds, we see the purpose, the pervasive purpose, but also the personality of Jesus. In the encounter with Peter and the disciples that I will address today, Jesus challenged their understanding of his identity, as well as the plan for achieving 
his purpose that God had given. The theme verse I've taken from Mark chapter 8. You can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 8 in your Bibles. Or if you're using um, smartphones or other devices, you can turn there, Mark chapter 8. And we will begin in, at verse 27 in the book that's available here. It's page 809. But the theme verse I've chosen is part of verse 29, which says, But who do you say that I am? This is life's most significant question. Have you answered it? This question, you see, has ultimate significance more than any other because it not only controls how you live on earth. So your concept of Christ controls your lifestyle. Do you realize that? But it also determines your eternal destiny. So there's no more important question. There's no more significant question that you must answer. And Jesus' challenging conversation with his disciples revealed several things for us. The first is that popular opinions are irrelevant. And what we'll see that he, I mean by that is that popular ideas or personal attitudes about his identity are of no significance. They're irrelevant. Verse 27. Jesus and his disciples, who had been together for now more than two years, left Galilee. Galilee's the upper area in the nation of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee, and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was a city that was located 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful, beautiful lake. I hope if you haven't been that someday you'll be able to go and see all these uh, wonderful sights. They're, it's a bit closed right now, but perhaps when it opens back up. And this particular city was named by Herod's son, Philip. He's called Philip the Tetrarch. Tetrarch means that he ruled over one-fourth of the country. So even though he was called a king, you could challenge whether there were, at least there were four kings over regions. And so this city was named to honor the emperor, Caesar Augustus, but it became known by a nickname, Caesarea Philippi, because of who named it. And it was given that name because it needed to be distinguished from another Caesarea. These people love naming cities after the emperor, hoping to gained some uh, credit from him. And there, the other um, Caesarea was down on the Mediterranean Sea. Again, they're both in ruins today, but Caesarea Martima on the Mediterranean is still a beautiful, beautiful place. Verse 27, the latter part of that verse. As they were walking along, he asked them, why do people? Now the word people in, in English is from the Greek word anthropos. Why do people say I am? And 
The reason it's important that anthropos was used is because it indicates that Jesus wasn't talking to a specific group. He wasn't identifying a specific um, group, say the religious leaders, but rather he's referring to the crowd that gathered to hear him teach and to watch his miracles. Now, do you think Jesus already knew what the people thought of him? Yeah. John 2, 24 and 25 clearly says he knew what they thought. So why did he ask? Yeah. He wanted his disciples to be aware and to carefully consider what these people who followed him around and had been with them for all two years of this ministry really thought about his true identity after observing him for this long. Verse 28, well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the prophets. Some people believe Jesus was John the Baptist. Risen from the dead. He's already been beheaded, you realize. And they thought, okay, he's John the Baptist. He's come to announce the Messiah. That's what Herod Antipas thought. He thought Jesus was John the Baptist, even though he's the very king that had John the Baptist beheaded. Matthew 14, Mark 6. Other people said Jesus was Elijah, returned from the dead, because that great Old Testament prophet was expected to be the forerunner of the Messiah, Malachi 4, 5. And that's why you find John the Baptist and Elijah linked together, and John the Baptist identified as Elijah, because John would be the forerunner. Now, it's interesting that, how many of you have been to a Seder? Jewish Passover dinner. Some have. It's customary in a Seder to pour a glass of wine at the end of the meal for whom? Do you know whom? Who's it for? The uncle that's not the, no. A glass of wine is poured at the end of the meal for Elijah in hope of his appearing to usher in the arrival of the Messiah. Now, one of the other prophets indicated that people thought, well, either some unnamed prophet, but he's an agent of God's power, but he's not the Messiah, so he must be some prophet just because of what he can do, Deuteronomy 18. Some did think he was Jeremiah because Jewish tradition thought that Jeremiah would arrive with the Ark of the Covenant at the establishment of the Messiah's kingdom. Okay, so if he comes carrying the ark, what's in it? JC and Josh been asking you any questions? <laughs> or have y'all been hiding? What's in it? Come on. Somebody, yeah, I can't hear all of that. The something of God Ten Commandments is, is one thing or two, but one of three different items. Whose staff, Don? 
Not Moses. You were doing so well. Aaron's staff that what? Budded and didn't turn into a snake. It did, well, it did earlier, but the snake's not in the ark. Aaron's rod that budded and produced ripe almonds. And then the third thing was a jar of manna. Those are the three items. In spite of Jesus' irrefutable miracles, which proved the presence of divine power, the people didn't believe he was the Messiah. So they considered him a prophet. Why? Why did they think this is not the Messiah arrived? I can hear the voice and it's correct, but I can't tell who's talking. Very good. Because they expected their Messiah to defeat the Roman occupiers and to set up his kingdom in Israel. So they were unwilling to embrace this Nazarene commoner who had some power but displayed no political ambitions. So he couldn't be the Messiah. These people couldn't deny the, 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 the supernatural, the divine power that Jesus possessed, but they would not accept him as Messiah and Savior because their expectations blinded them to his true identity. In our culture, especially in the South, I can't speak authoritatively of other parts of the country because I've lived my whole life in the South from North Carolina all the way west to Texas. But in our culture, he is believed to be the son of God, actually raised from the dead. 70% of Americans say he is the son of God raised from the dead. But he's not recognized as the Lord and ruler of our lives, which is his true biblical identity. See, popular opinion is that he desires to forgive us when we, whenever we ask, when we merely ask. But the relationship that results from that forgiveness is largely one-sided. We do what we want and he forgives. Is that accurate? No, that's a caricature. It has a piece of truth. Something with a piece of truth twisted is always the most dangerous thing. That's a misrepresentation of Jesus' identity. He does want to be involved in your life. He does want to forgive you. He does want to relate to you daily, intimately. But part of that relationship carries some expectations that he will lead and guide us in every area of our lives. Isn't that what a relationship, a true one is like? 
It's interesting as I've been away studying, I've maybe seen a little more of what's happening in the culture. And it's interesting how many do cite the name of God. Sometimes even Jesus, less so. But they then link it to issues and subjects that violate who Jesus represents himself to be in the Bible. I mean, God's name is, has become very popular. I mean, I've even, I know a little bit about social media. Are y'all surprised? And I'm amazed, I was amazed how often God is cited followed by something awful. By the same writer. Jesus is who he is. We can't fashion him into someone who endorses our moral or, hold on to your seat, or political positions. We must conform our lives and our views to him, not attach him as a sticker to endorse what we believe. Since I'm new, I can push again. Jesus isn't a Republican, but neither is he a Democrat. And so we need to conform our lives, our opinions, our attitudes, our ideas to him. And then how we act and live and vote should follow accordingly. What influences your understanding of Jesus' identity? Your own ideas and preferences? The opinions of others? Media or social media? Or God's word? And of all of those, which is authoritative? Jesus' challenging conversation also revealed that personal conviction is crucial. Verse 29. Then he asked them, but who do you and there was an emphasis there, even in his tone. Say, I am. See, he, he redirected the question. He wanted them to, to know and reflect on what everybody thought. And then he said, okay, but is that what you think? I want to hear what you think. And it implies that he expected a different answer from them. Now, like all Jews, the disciples had been taught and they did desire the arrival of a mighty military leader who would defeat Israel's enemies and would establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. They, they embraced that idea. 
But when it became clear that the religious leaders who, they, they didn't despise all these religious leaders. Sometimes we have the idea that all of these people were despised by the commoners. They, they, they weren't, they were respected and some of them were respectable about the scripture. But the people that should have been first to embrace Jesus are the first to reject him. So when they saw that, they were puzzled and then they didn't hear anything out of him about organizing people and, and getting ready, ready to start a war. And so the disciples had to wonder whether they were wrong about his identity. Who else questioned? John the Baptist, the very one that baptized him. But from jail, he sent a question, are you the Messiah or should we expect someone else to come? Continue in verse 29. Peter replied, he was often the first to speak, wasn't he? It got him in trouble. Sometimes he should have just been quiet, step back. You are the Messiah. Now the word Messiah is what language? It's Hebrew. And a synonym for Messiah in Greek is what? Christ. Those are the exact same words, those two words. And they both literally translate what? Boy, somebody over there is really hot today. <laughs> yes, they both translate anointed one, which meant the deliverer of Israel. Luke 9.20, Peter, in Peter's response, included sent from God. Matthew 16.16 16, 16 includes in Peter's response, the son of the living God. Mark tended to be briefer with what he reported. So without hesitation, Peter declared Jesus to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. You see, he was convinced of Jesus' identity. How was he so certain? Did he just observe more? Did he have a stronger opinion? Did he, because he had a stronger personality? No, look at this verse. And this is what Jesus said to him in Matthew in the, same, in the same setting. You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Does that strike anybody as surprising? We don't just come to an opinion about Jesus humanly. The identity of Jesus is revealed to us spiritually. And that's the way you can't abandon it. Because not only do you have it, it has you. Something that a human decides, I mean, look how many things you can change your mind about. I mean, good gracious, we live in a, a year of all kinds of flying opinions, don't we? Vaccines, viruses, they're just all kinds of differing opinions from supposed experts. 
So you might believe this and then that and then switch around. But see, this happened in an experience. And what you know is an experience you can't deny. See, I have, well, I actually have three grandboys and I'll have a granddaughter supposed to be later this week. But I've held this little boy that y'all saw the picture of. I've held him. I've changed his diapers. I've fed him with the tube. I've loaded him. I've helped my wife. She's an RN and certified. I've helped her do do the dialysis. I know this child, and this child knows me. You can't tell me I don't have this little boy. But that's really the way it is with Jesus. You've experienced him by his spirit. You cannot be talked out of it. It's a fact. And that's what Jesus is saying. Peter, you didn't just come to this opinion because of what you saw. You came to it because the spirit of God has revealed truth to your soul. Do you remember that experience? I mean, remember this. Many, many people, I mean, there was a crowd that followed him and observed the miracles. Perhaps they, you know, they saw the lame walk. They saw the blind see. Perhaps they ate um, when the, when the 5,000 were fed and then maybe again also when the 4,000 were fed. They had seen so many miracles. They heard this wonderful, wise teaching. And they didn't believe. Most of them didn't believe. Even after seeing the miracles. Now Jesus is asking you that question. I'm doing it today for him. But there'll come a day when all of us will be asked this question in some form. Who do you think Jesus is? Romans 10 says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. But understand this, believe in your heart is more of an all-encompassing thing. You see what I'm saying? It's not just a little bit of information that you have that you might change your mind on. It's a consuming. Believe in your soul. Believe in your inner parts. That God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And that, that saved means not only regenerated. But spared from judgment. For it is by believing in your heart. You are made right with God. And it's believing in that sacrifice. It happened for me. That was sung about earlier. And it is by confessing with your mouth. That you are saved. Because you're declaring what you've experienced. Have you believed? Do you declare? How do you demonstrate? Now then Jesus follows up with something that's a bit, a bit surprising at verse 30. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Wonder why that is. 
you know? That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Here's why. Because the work wasn't finished. Because the gospel message was incomplete. Because the suffering, the death, the resurrection still lay ahead. You see, you could embrace the teaching of Jesus. But unless you benefit from the blood, you aren't born again. You, you, you can follow the teaching and you might live a much better life because the truth is truth. But it's the death that removes our sins. And it's the resurrection that confirms it's sufficient. It wasn't yet time for them to start spreading the good news because the sacrifice for sin had not occurred. Jesus' challenging conversation also revealed a particular, that particular commitment is essential and that's the commitment to God's plan. Verse 31, then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man, this is Jesus' most common title for himself. It, it's mentioned in the scripture first at Daniel 7, 13, and it, it emphasized his humanness. The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. Do you think they were shocked at that? Yeah. I mean, you, gotta put, you have to put yourself there. I mean, they, they, they believed, some, probably some convinced more than others, that he was the Messiah. But they could not comprehend the thought that he could be abused and murdered. It didn't fit into their concept. Now, had Jesus ever spoken before about his death? Yeah. But he did so in indirect ways. Matthew 12, 40, he said, the son of man will be three days in the belly of the earth just as Jonah was three days within the big fish. John 2, 19, he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. But here, there, there's no imagery being used. Here, he states it plainly. Now, the disciples were convinced Jesus was a divine person. But here, they are struggling with the divine plan. Perhaps not hearing, maybe overlooking the references he made before to resurrection. Or maybe when they heard it, they thought he was speaking of the final resurrection. Anybody here ever been accused by anyone here of not listening? I want to see some hands. Yes. Anybody here ever been accused of hearing only what they want to hear. 
Now, who's ever been accused of that? Come on, get them up. I want some courage. You've never, you've never been accused. Now he's nodding. I think all of us can be guilty of listening for what we want to hear. So they heard this and they just ignored it or went ahead and thought, oh, it means something different. And they applied their own opinions. You ever done that? Somebody's told you over and over who they are, what they intend, and you never heard it. You just put your own preference in place. There were many Old Testament passages that predicted the Messiah must suffer. But understand this, see the, the teachers of the law, they didn't want to see that either. That didn't fit their profile. So they perhaps misinterpreted, but certainly mistaught what the Messiah's coming would be like. And so the Jewish people believed what they did because that's what they'd been taught. So the idea of a suffering savior was foreign to them. And in verse 32, Jesus continues, and he talked about this openly with his disciples. So he's continuing, it doesn't report it in Mark or the other gospels, exactly what he said, but he kept talking about this, the abuse, the arrest, the the death, the resurrection. And Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Can you imagine? Peter rebuked Jesus. Why did he do it? He what? He didn't like what he was hearing. You think it could have been just out of concern for this man? I don't want you to endure that. You think it could have been that? Sure. Was it because it wasn't what he wanted for Jesus and certainly not what he wanted for himself? Maybe, maybe. But remember who this guy is. And all these men. We're only aware of one of them that had wealth and he gave it away. You heard that in one of the earlier messages in the series. So these disciples have followed with Jesus, but to follow him, they did what? They gave up everything they had, gave up their jobs. Maybe they sold their boats and their nets or whatever else they did. Maybe they just abandoned them. We don't know. Left their friends, left their families, left whatever homes they had, followed him. So they depended on him, not only spiritually, these folks depended on him practically. Don't raise your hands, but some of us in this room are all worried Something's going to happen to the stock market. Because that's where my money is. I've got my, my 501, whatever, 401, what, you know, it's all, I got all my money. Well, did these guys have a 403B, a 401K? A fi- did they? No, they had nothing. And what little they had, they gave up and followed him. So yes, there's all these spiritual motivations, but don't over-spiritualize this Bible. I've told y'all that before. These were real people. 
There was a group of women and there was at least one that was wealthy, but there were some women that traveled with them and helped support them. You knew that, didn't you? Okay, so what happens if Jesus is gone? These guys have no way to make a living anymore. Can they go back? Can they start over? So there's a lot going on here. They depended on him spiritually, yes. Also practically for support, for direction. And furthermore, they thought, okay, I thought I had a government job lined up. When you rule, I thought I would get to rule with you. I mean, they debated on who was going to be on the left and the right, didn't they? So they had all these expectations. And Jesus was disappointing them all. Verse 33. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. They all thought the same thing. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view. Matthew 16 says, you are a dangerous trap to me. So you're seeing from a human point of view, not from God's. By opposing the plan of God, by scolding Jesus for speaking of suffering and death, Peter actually became the spokesman for what the devil wanted from Jesus. I mean, the temptation, remember? Why would you continue? I'll give you the, all the cities in the world and all the power you want. Do you think Satan literally influenced Peter's words? Literally. Literally. What do you think, Bobby? Did Satan literally influence Peter's words? Perhaps. The scripture clearly says in Luke 4, after tempting Jesus in the wilderness, Satan left him for a while waiting on further opportunities. Was this one of the opportunities? How many of us fail to see God clearly and know him intimately because our own expectations of him, our own preferences for him, obscure who he reveals himself to be? And how many of us ignore, avoid, frustrate God's will for our lives because we have our own plans for ourselves. The very next verse, which is our memory verse for this week, Mark 8:34 gives some insight. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples. So all those other people standing around, he's now saying, you come on in. But he's saying that to us. Come on. You come in. You come in. You want to take their place? Come in here. I, I've got something else to, to challenge you with. You too. Come on in. Come in. 
if any of you want to be my follower. He's saying that to us today, as well as these people that gathered around him. You turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. Someone in the earlier service asked, well, they, Jesus wasn't crucified yet. But, but don't miss this. No, he wasn't. But the Romans had been crucifying thousands of people. And they hung them right by the sides of the busiest roads. So they were well aware what, what taking up a cross meant because these, these often these criminals had to take up and carry the cross that would be the instrument of their death. You must turn from your selfish ways. You must take up your cross, which means dying to what you want. Giving up your plans and dreams, forsaking your goals and ambitions to follow Christ. Doesn't mean he's going to take from you everything you have, but are you willing to let it go? And if it's in the way of what you know he wants from you, will you give it up? Some of you right now, there may be something in your life and he's been telling you, let it go. Let it go. Because we have to learn that God is God and we are not. You know, I fully believe that God can heal. 100%. And I have prayed and I've fasted and I've prayed quietly and I've prayed loudly. And I've yelled and I've prayed on the floor and I've prayed on my knees and I've prayed standing up and I've prayed in the morning and I've prayed at night. And so many of you, and even and the, besides the people in my family, are praying in the same way. And so far, I haven't figured out how to get God in a headlock. To make him do what I want in my timing. But God is good. And God is gracious. And I'm not God. Am I willing to let go of my expectations of God? My demands on him to let him be God and let me follow him. Do you want to follow? How about that? How many of you do want to follow? It's time to follow. We do not know what this year is going to hold. I will promise you, you can follow Christ but you may have to die to some of the ways you want things to work out.
Will you do it? Counselors will be here at, this, here at the stage. And if you want them to help you answer this question, who do you say Jesus is? They'll be here and they'll stay as long as you want. They'll pray with you. They'll anoint you with, with oil because we fully believe in healing. We just believe that God decides when and where. So the counselors will be here. Next week, I'm going to deal with, I, t- I told Josh earlier, Josh and JC put this series together and they gave me the, the eternal encounter. So I have to preach out of Revelation 20 and 21 next week. It was nice to give you a hard one instead of the other way around. <laughs> so read it ahead. Read those chapters ahead and we will deal with what the end times uh, is going to look like. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to know in our souls who you are. But Lord, help us to see whether our definition of your identity mirrors your revelation of who you are. Help us to follow you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. Here's our memory verse, Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. At Brookwood, we want to help you pursue a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience a transformed life. One way you can do this is by getting connected at Brookwood. Please email us, connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call 864-688-8326 to speak to someone on our connections team. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for listening and have a great week.